but then, you know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition, a special Thursday edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the Long Island Iced Z, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, I have to start this episode out by saying Velen Donk, and I, I sure hope I said that right, but Velen Donk is German for thank you very much. As of last night, Dan and Benny in the Ring was the number 49 rated wrestling podcast in Germany, so to all our friends in the Deutschland, a heartfelt thank you. Absolutely. But before we get to our friends in Germany, Benny, the Irish invasion continues on this show. This is three weeks in a row now. We've we've talked to our friends from across the pond. Obviously, we had our uh, our intro a couple weeks back with part one with Mickey Doyle. We had our our first sit down with Davey O'Hannon last week. And um, what's everybody what's on the docket for tonight? Well, you know, my, my script here says, speaking of Germany, we had this gentleman on a couple of weeks ago, and we had such a good time, and there were so many stories that still needed to be told that we brought him back for part two. So once again, it's a pleasure to welcome back Irish Mickey Doyle. And uh, Mick, happy uh, belated birthday. Oh, thanks, guys. First of all, thanks for having me back. It's a, it's a great time doing this show with you two guys. And yeah, happy birthday. I'm, I'm old. I'm old, but... Uh, that's oh, how it right works, right? Same birthday. I know that's cool, eh? And I saw that on the Facebook. I thought, damn, what a coincidence! I know that was pretty cool. Couple yeah. years behind you, but I'm catching up. <laughs> well, you might catch up. This is my 75th birthday, so I should probably stop. You know, I mean, really. <laughs> no, don't do that. I don't plan on stopping. I'm seven behind you. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. If I stopped, then that's all she wrote, well, right? The train. I came to the finals. Yeah, the final resting place. So, right. whatever so happens. Last match left in you, I'm sure. How's how's that old? Uh, yeah. How's that old saying go, Benny? The uh, only person, Father Times, the only person who never does the job. That's what Jr. says. <laughs> yeah, that's a good saying. A lot of truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we well, had a lot of. We had a lot of fun on the last episode, and, and obviously we said we wanted to get you back for part two, and uh, we kind of keep the theme going. Uh, in between your two two parts, we had our interview with uh, Davey O'Hannon, and yeah. I- I'm curious of something. I, I know we, we did a lot of cross-promotions a few weeks back. Um, as of this morning, uh, I believe it was about nine, right around 9.30, I was talking with Benny, and I was showing some numbers. Your first episode with us is our number one listened to episode so far this year in just two weeks. Damn. And wow. I, I mean that as, as a compliment on your end. It, it got huge numbers uh, in comparison to our usual averages. And there was a lot of, of discourse uh-huh. on the page. And I know the, the pro wrestling stories. And there was a lot of conversation that kind of popped up from that um, as as the the. 
the transition goes and the stories themselves, I was wondering if you had any thoughts. What is it about your story that so many people found so interesting? Like, like, why do you suppose all these years later, the kind of stories you were telling are still what wrestling fans want to hear? Um, I guess maybe because they hadn't heard him before. And maybe it was coming from a guy that was never a superstar, just, you know, what do you, middle of the road jabroni type thing. I think maybe people can relate to that, you know, and being a single parent and trying, you know, doing that in the wrestling business. I mean, maybe some people thought, hey, I was a single parent or some gal said I was a single parent, so I can uh, relate to that. Maybe, maybe that plays into it. I don't know. Just different stories from a different era. And, um, that's my thoughts on the matter. It could be something like that. Well, I mean, <laughs> of all the stories you told, the ones we, we got to talking about that we, we kind of enjoyed yeah. was we had started talking about your time with the California hippies uh, in previ- on your previous appearance. You mentioned uh-huh. Mike Wayne wasn't much in the way of, of high spots, but he was a hell of a talker. Uh, we briefly speculated. Oh, Mike, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Mike was one of the best talkers I've ever seen. He was, he he was serious, but then he'd say something that was funny, you know. And then it was he was just good. Mike was Mike. Don't get me wrong. Mike was a good worker. He just wasn't a high spot worker. He was just a uh, power type worker. He, he did a lot of gimmick matches, you know, the street fights and that. That's what he was really good at. He, he would he would take crazy bumps too. I mean, believe me, he took his bumps weren't pretty, but they were like Cactus Jack type things, you know. Yeah. Before Cactus Jack, it was it was that sort of thing. He you know he'd dive off the you know he'd just dive off the top rope outside type crazy things like um, you know Mick Foley would do. And that's what I'm saying. He just well, I did the high spots, you know the the cool stuff, and Mike just did the strongman stuff. And and for the most part, we healed only in uh, Mobile, but then we went out everywhere else, and we were or no we baby faced and we were you know. Like rock stars, honestly. Then we heal, and everywhere else we went to, and it was just the way it worked. The whole hi- dirty hippies at the time, I guess. <laughs> well, spe- yeah. speaking of of heel, we we briefly speculated uh-huh. how well the the hippies would have done as as heels in New York. I mean, you guys, we talked about it. Uh, you guys won the U.S. Tag Champs uh, Tag Championships yeah. in '72 and '73. And back then, uh, uh, in the territory days, you mentioned it when you talked about the workers. Nobody got a belt. Unless you were over, you could draw serious money, and the promoters trusted you in in that way. Um, one thing that intrigued me that you like you just said that the hippies you were baby faces in Mobile, Alabama, but heels everywhere uh-huh. else. How did yeah. that happen? You know, it, it, and and if you, you know you, um, you talked about the stable situations you had, um, or the situations, excuse me, you had. If if we had had more of a stable situation at home and hadn't have had to leave, how far do you think the hippies would have gone? I think I think we'd have done really well. You know, um, we did the we started as the hippies. I think it was seventy two a mobile, and I came, I was working Tampa. I don't know if I said this last show. I was working Tampa, and Mike Boyd had just left to go to Mobile. He'd been in on there on there before. And and I, they did what they, you know, I didn't do much there. I did learn a lot, but I was there about seven to eight months. And Louis Talay was the booker. He goes, you know, a guy just left here and you guys look alike. So he called Lee Fields, who was the owner of the promotion. And uh, he said, you got a guy, he, he buy a good partner for Boyette. They look alike. They got the same hair gimmick. And 
so I went in there and yeah, when they gave us the belt within like four days, they gave we. Uh, I think we worked against Eddie Sullivan and Rip Tyler, two tough hombres, and um, it just clicked. But then the other promotions, like the first place we went to was for in Memphis for Nick Goulas, and they liked us as heels. But now there's a territory that you're never home, literally you're never home, and you work five or six different states, and sometimes the payoffs were all right. But we stayed there about three weeks and said, nope. And we got booked in, Mo- in uh, Montgomery for Billy Golden, um, which was great. A little small territory. and uh, But he wanted us as heels. So that's how the heel thing came because they had Ricky Gibson and a guy, a fellow named Ramon Perez, were the, had the belts for Billy Golden. And, you know, two baby faces, high spot dudes. And they, uh, you know, thought it would be a perfect matchup, which it was. And we were doing okay, you know, making. I don't know anywhere from three fifty to four fifty a week, but down there, you know, you make then you say you make four hundred a week. That's not bad at all in the early seventies. And the, you know, I was renting a house down there. I think for two hundred fifty dollars, a little house right by the arena in Montgomery it was, you know, I saved a little money. But then, and I get it. Like I said, uh, Mike missed Miss Betty and the kids, and he he wanted to go home. So that's what happened. But getting to the question, which I never got to. Um, like New York, you know, they had monsters back then. They were, everybody was 250 and up, right? The heels that I remember when they had, you know, Pedro had the belt and he was going against, he'd always be a big guy, uh, Bobby Duncan or Lonnie Mann came in, even though Lonnie was short, but he was 280. Um, as, as heel tag team, I think we, I don't know who had been the heel tag teams back there, the baby faces would have been like Victor Rivera and somebody, something like that, Victor and uh, Tony Gray or something like that. That probably would have, would have been, yeah, Dominic, uh, we would have been the same size as them. I don't know if they would want us to bulk up more. I, I don't know. Maybe they would have, but I mean, I could do the spots, you know, like with Victor, which I did work with Victor in California and we had some really nice matches, but, um, I think we would have done well, but like I said, they might have wanted us to bulk up. Maybe the I was two twenty, Mike was two forty. They might have wanted us to get bigger. I don't know. You know, that's a tough question. But I think we could have done well. Um, they, you know, what was the seven nineteen seventy three? Charlie Moto from L.A. called called Lee Fields and said, "I don't know how he heard about us, but he did, and he wanted us to come in there." And and Lee Fields goes, "Well, you know, you guys. I mean, this is, could be a big opportunity for you." Because that was one of the good promotions then, making money. You know, San Francisco, Minnesota, L.A., they were, you know, that was known to have nice payoffs back in that era. And uh, so we said, okay, we'll give it a shot. So Mike went out there first, and it wasn't working. He'd been out there two weeks. He said, this just ain't working, you know. They give me, they let him talk, which was good, but I don't know. They wanted more in the ring or something. So in the meantime, I'm thinking I'm coming out there. And uh, what happened was, I'm really getting way off base here, but anyway, what happened was um, we had worked the spot show, um, and this guy, Rocky McGuire, he would work. He was the promoter of the Florida towns, and the fields would do the Alabama-Mississippi towns. And it was a spot show, and it was like 3,000 people, and Rocky paid everybody like 150, 200 bucks. It was great, a little Saturday night gig. So Lee Fields automatically runs it again, and uh uh, two weeks later, the same house, and he gives everybody a $50 payoff. Well, I knew I was leaving anyway, so I got pissed. I got really pissed, and I said, no, uh, you know, Rocky, 
blah, 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 you screwed us, Lee. And uh, so I left. I didn't really leave. I just uh, said, forget it. And I went back to, I was living in Pensacola. And I thought, well, L.A., but then I got in touch with Mike, and he said, I'm coming home. So now I don't have a job, right? And I'm thinking, okay, so um, Bobby Shane was in town in that time frame. He would he was coming up from Tampa working with uh, Cowboy Bob Kelly and everything. So, I, you know, I knew Bobby from, uh, where did I know him from? Detroit, I think, actually. And he, uh, I said, you know, can you help me get booked somewhere? He goes, okay. So he calls Don Owens in Oregon. He got me booked there. Long story short, but that was the last time me and Hippie were together. Was that, and we never the LA thing didn't work. Now, if they would have, we should. If we would have went out together, I think it would have worked. Because I, like I said, I would do the spots, and they, we'd have been working with some good, uh, probably some of the Hispanic dudes out there at the time, Raul Mata and guys like that, and probably would have had some classic matches. But it didn't happen that way. And I went to Oregon, and Mike went back to Mobile, and that was that. And uh, we never were together again. But like I said, like I said, we went to Kansas. They were going to give us the belts, but Mike had to leave. And just uh, that was the story of that. But I think if we could have got some real good exposure for a length of time, like in Kansas, I think we would have done well, you know, with the belts. And they really liked us in Kansas. They really did. Uh, Geigel and, and Harley and Pat O'Connor had the promotion then, and they – we did a, we, I'll just tell you, we did a promo one night, and it had been raining. This was in Kansas City. I think it was Memorial Hall it was called. And they do promos before the matches. So we used to do this gimmick where I'd hold these cinder blocks. They were probably two inches thick, and Mike would uh, punch him. You know, he, he was into the martial arts. And actually, he was a, he was a substitute for the uh, some Olympics in the late 60s as a judo, you know, a judo uh, dude. And um, so he could actually throw punches. And uh, so anyway, I'm holding the cinder block, and it, like I said, it just rained, and there was water on the floor. And he, whoever the announcer was, it was Geigel, actually. And he was, now Geigel wouldn't have been doing the interviews. He was a baby face there. I forget. Anyway, I'm holding the blocks, and he just throws a quick right jab, and it didn't break. So he, <laughs> he does it again, and he slips and falls, and as he's falling, he's going, God damn it. And uh, Bob goes, that's perfect. He said, that's perfect. That was a great, great promo. And that, that's what they liked. It became humorous. Our, our promos became humorous because we could never break the cinder block, and he'd always swear. And, uh, but like I said, yeah, they liked us. It just, no, no. Okay, I got this brain damage from getting hit with chairs. Here's what really happened. I remember we missed a show. That's, we missed the show on a Sunday in Des Moines or something. It was like a blizzard. And uh, I met him in town. I was staying in North Kansas, and he was staying downtown. And he goes, partner, we had Volkswagen campers, too, like the hippie vans, we called them. And they were not good in the winter. And we were driving mine, and we started driving. It was like I couldn't even get traction. He goes, partner, I don't know about this trip. And we didn't go. So that kind of sealed the fate there on that, the belts. You know, we were going to get the belts that following week. We didn't get the belts. And that was, then Mike boogied back to uh, Mobile. So that was, um, that was the end of that. They wanted me to stay. And I may have said this last story. They wanted me to stay and cut my hair. And I was going to be the estranged son of an old timer named Ronnie Etchison. I don't know if you ever heard of Ronnie Etchison. He was a. Absolutely. Great wrestler. Yeah. Yeah. He was a, he had a great career and, um, he was now refereeing and doing an odd show as a wrestler, and they were 
like they said, you cut your hair and we'll have you, uh, you know, as his son coming back to the the nest or whatever. And I just thought, you know, this would be a really a good break for me because uh, I would get the keel. You know, they were running the keel once a month in St. Louis, which was a really good payoff. And, and Sam Munchick didn't like the hippies. He didn't like the gimmick. That's why we never got the kill when we were there, because he didn't like the long hair and he, all that. He, so. wasn't, he wasn't one for much for gimmicks, though, was he, uh, Mike? Yeah, that's. I, I worked the kill one time in my life, and I remember he was there. No, I don't believe he was. He liked just the straight wrestling. And uh, I heard the Sheik worked there one time and was doing his stuff, and he never booked him again in the kills, the story goes. But he... Uh, I would have got the keel. I know that, but I was thinking, nah, and just go back and we'll try it again. And I did. And then they gave us the belts as soon as we got back again. That would have been in 73. But uh, from your original question that I started rambling on, I think um, I think we would have done well if we could have stayed somewhere for a length of time. And I, I, I may have told you this before. We were working in uh, St. Joe one night in Dory Funk. Um, Junior, I think he had the belt then, I'm not mistaken, and he liked our shit because, you know, uh, Amar- Amarillo, Christ, they were gimmicks and bleeding, and, you know, they. but Dory said to Mike and me, he says, you know, I like this gimmick, you, you can work with Terry and me and, you know, do our thing, and he said, I'll give you 500 a week, which, you know, that was like, shoo, made my eyes come out of my head, And but, you know, I screwed that up. This wasn't Mike's screw-up, this was on me. Because I was married to this gal who had a lot of insecurities about me being faithful, and so I didn't go because on the road in Amarillo too for weeks at a time. So I I screwed that one up. That wasn't on Mike. That was me for sure. So, but yeah, I think we, Amarillo of all of them, I think would have been the best move for us. I think you know working with the two funks. Are you kidding me? And then you know working probably some cool gimmick matches. That's the place that we, if we were going to get our notoriety, Amarillo, I think would have been the place, even though New York, you get a notoriety, but I still think Amarillo would have been a really good uh, stepping stone for the future. But that was on me. So, but yeah, if we could have stayed together, I think, I think we would have had a pretty good career together. If it would have went, say, you know, it went two years, but it could have probably went 10 years. So, yeah, we both just had these situations where we didn't want to be on the road for that long, and that screwed it all up. <laughs> so whew, that was it. On that, so, uh, Mickey, um, when I I started watching wrestling in 1968, I started collecting magazines right about the same time. One of the first guys I read about was Ripper Collins, and I think at that time he was in Hawaii. But you, you yeah. mentioned offline that you have a lot of uh, uh, Portland-based Ripper Collins stories. So at the risk of uh, us being kicked off the air, let's, let's hear them. <laughs> okay. I was thinking about – I was out weed-whacking today, and I was thinking about Oregon and the Ripper. And I, I remember my first night in there, I went in there in July of 73, and I think – memory serves me right. I, the first night they teamed me up with a fellow named Haru Sasaki, a little dude that was on the West Coast for most of his career, and he managed a lot. And uh, we worked against Al Madrill and Manny Cruz. I don't know if anybody out there knows who Manny Cruz is, but um, do you guys know who Manny Cruz is? Just throwing the name out there. Does not sound familiar. No, Kate does ring a bell. Sorry. Okay. Okay, well, his real name is Jose Gonzalez. So... That's who Manny Cruz is. 
And uh, you guys know who Jose is, right? You know that one? That's that, is that the uh, the the guy that the killed guy Brody? Brody? Yeah, the guy that yeah, yeah. The invader, right? Yeah, that was a dude. Yeah, the invader, right, out of Puerto Rico. But um, that was my first night, and uh, I was doing the spots with Al Maduro. Manny could man, they both were good workers. So then they put us. I think we did a thirty-minute Broadway. Then the next night they teamed me up with. I forget, but we worked against Manny and uh, Jose again. And then Ripper saw this, and he, well, first of all, where I lived in, in Oregon, I lived in a town called Milwaukee, Oregon. And Ripper lived in Milwaukee, Oregon. We had rented a little house, and Ripper had a little apartment deal, him and his wife, and they had a little daughter they adopted from Hawaii. So we were like 10 minutes from each other. So, you know, we went on the road together just for most of the shots. So um, he liked what he saw of me. Um, so he went to Don Owens and says, Hey, you know, give the kid a chance with me and we'll see what happens. So anyway, we worked as partners, but the thing is Ripper was, did the gimmick of, you know, he was blonde and, and you know, he was, he was pretty or whatever. And I was this goofy hippie. So it didn't get over. So, um, I'm getting to, I'll get to some good Ripper stories, but like I said, we were, we were still buddies and travel all the time, but just to make a quick inside note here, Greg Valentine then came in the promotion about two months later and he was the blonde. So that they became a team instantly. So that's how that all played out. But, um, I don't know. One of my first Ripper stories was we were, we were booked in a town called Astoria. It's right on the coast on a Sunday. And Ripper always was telling me he wanted to go salmon fishing. Got to go salmon fishing. So he said, this is what we'll do. We were Portland night before. We'll just drive to Astoria from the show. So he took his wife, Barbara Baker, who was a girl wrestler. That was his wife. And he had the little Hawaiian gal. I can't remember her name. And it was me and, and my first wife. And we're going to Astoria. And he had this old station wagon. You know, huge old Ford whatever. And he was... He wanted to strap everything to the top of our suitcases. Back then, we had, like, old-time suitcases. We didn't have the cool bags they got now. And he's strapping this down. Well, maybe an hour of the trip, we stopped, and there's, our suitcases are gone. It's like four suitcases. So we had to backtrack. We found our suitcases. This went on, like, three times in this trip, coming and going, these suitcases. So I finally told him, Ripper, we got to put the suitcases inside the car, regardless if it's taking up my room. I don't care. Finally, he did that, but I, okay, so we get to Astoria, it's like 4 a.m., and the fishing trip's at like 6, you know, and I'm exhausted, we had both worked the night before and then drove, so we go, him and I go down to the, wherever we went, jump on this boat with a lot of 10 or 11 people, and it's like Titanic weather, the, the waves were everywhere, and the boats were, and people were throwing up, and it was a nightmare, that was just a total nightmare, so we got back to the room and finally slept and did the show that night. And same thing going home. The suitcases, like I said, they came off at least two more times. That was uh, one of my one of my number one stories. Um, this is a, this is one that's a little X-rated, but I'm going to go there. So what the hell? So this is a match. Okay, first of all, the guy that ran these towns, Don Owens, but his brother was named Elton Owens. Yes, and he would run yeah. the. He okay. He would run the Portland, not the Portland. That was Don's baby. He, um, Eugene Salem, and all these other little shows. And this was his um, show this night, wherever it was. And I remember the match. It was, it was uh, Greg and Ripper versus me and 
who was the baby? No, I. It was a heel match. It was four heels working, but it was me and just say Haru Sasaki. I don't remember. So we had first of all, Elton is a homophobic. The guy is a complete homophobic back in the era, and he had a son that was gay. But being that he was gay, he disowned him. That's the type of guy this guy was, right? So he went on the mic one night. Yeah, real dilly. And he goes on the the mic and he started bashing the whole gay people and on and on and on. This was in Eugene. And and I thought, Jesus, this guy, you know, what is his deal? So long story short, we do this match in this spot show wherever we were. The four of us were in the shower. You know how after the match, everybody's shaking hands. Oh, great match, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I stuck my hand out. And the the four of us were in the shower. And he grabs my... uh, he grabs my dick, he starts shaking it, and he goes, great match, Mickey. So I grab Valentine's dick, I go, great match, Greg. And then he grabs, I th- say it was Haru Sasaki, and, and the four of us are like doing a circle jerk, and Elton Owen walks by and looks in there, and he goes, God damn, what, what the hell's going on here? And Ripper goes, oh, we're just, we're just congratulating each other, uh, Elton, Uncle Elty. And it was like, that was a good one. That was uh, one of my uh, all-time favorites. Ripper stories, and a lot of times we would go into a restaurant before the match or something, get a cup of coffee, and Ripper would always carry this little purse, this little, you know, like a before fanny pack type purse. He'd always carry that, and he'd have his white boots on, and he was he was a cool dude. But he'd always walk in there, and he'd always say for everybody to hear, "Well, here comes the old queen and his stud again tonight. Anybody want autographs? You know, and this is in some." two-bit town in Oregon, and these people are just looking and looking, and some of them knew who we were, but some of them didn't. It was just always something like that. Just Ripper was just a, he was a classic, man. He was just such a classic, and he would, I remember we first got colored TV there on a Saturday night. He, Don Owen used to run, we'd do TV on, every Saturday night was TV, and then he'd run the house show on Tuesday in Portland every uh, twice a month, and then we'd do TV in Salem for Elton. But um, we got color TV the first time wrestling been on color TV there, and I remember his wife Barbara would come came in the dressing room and just spray painted his hair purple. It was so cool, you know. He had his purple tights on, and he had the purple hair that night. He was just so ready for that. And Ripper was just he was just a cool dude. He just so much fun. He got you know he got had problems down the road with stuff in Calgary and all that, but whatever. He just Ripper was Ripper, and he he just so much fun to be with. Just never knew i remember one night another show i don't remember the town and this for weeks it was a uh, show we ran every week and for weeks this big really burly gal was giving him hell at ringside i mean really making some you know some really off-color comments so after the match we're getting ready to go in fact we're leaving and she's in the back and she tried to attack him literally attack him with a i think it was a fingernail file right and it was just the three of us, her and me and him. And she came at him, and he snatched her and pulled her by the hair and yanked her ass down on the ground, you know. And, I mean, you know, I, I, I think he hurt her. And all I remember him saying is, Mickey, we got to get the hell out of here now. So we got the hell out of there now. And then in the following week, we never saw that chick again. So, um, but that, I don't blame him. You know, this chick's coming at you. and. But, you know, back in the day, Christ, they would have loved to have arrested him on that one. Um, you know, a woman, and he was a heel, and nobody liked him, but fortunately right. nothing came of that. But it was yeah. it was always an adventure. It just You just never knew with him what was going to happen. And um, 
I remember though another the first time we went to a show together, it was in uh, uh, Medford, Medford, Oregon. That was about a that was close to three hundred miles from Portland or Milwaukee. So we had just gotten there, and I asked him, you know, can my wife stay with your wife tonight? Blah blah blah. And yeah, fine. And so we get home. I don't know, probably three a.m. And I picked her up, and we're driving back, and she goes, "Never, don't ever do that to me again. Never," because. Barbara Jean was bisexual too, right? And she was, uh, she did like a strip tease in front of my wife. And, and I said, okay, we won't do that again. <laughs> so, you know, that's just the way they were. It just, it, that's that's how they rolled. It's just good people, fun people. But now I don't know whatever happened to their little daughter that they adopted, you know, with that situation being like that. I Hopefully she had a good life. You know, I don't know. I'd never heard anything about that, um, that the kid, you know, I, I hope but nothing weird happened to her, but, but anyway, I, I think those are my top ripper stories, you know, other than just everyday situations with him. I mean, we were so goofy. That's on the, on the trips going somewhere. We'd always watch this show, Yaki Doodle and Chopper. That's how our mentality was cartoons. And we talk about Yaki Doodle and Chopper, the little bird and the, and the bulldog. That was, you know, that's not a good mentality, but that's uh, <laughs> that's how it was. Our, uh, that's the same thing in L.A. with Buddy Roberts. Him and, uh, and Jerry Brown were the Hollywood Blondes. And every day, because those were short trips and we travel, we talk about this show called House of Frightenstein. It was like a Frankenstein guy doing a gimmick, but they call it Frankenstein. They show these really goofy movies and that would be our conversation, you know. So um, I think times have changed in the wrestling business. I, don't, I think guys probably are using their heads more, probably not watching cartoons and stuff like that, but uh, you never know. So, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm really getting <laughs> – go ahead. Hey, I was going to say, in the, with the rise of social media and all these younger wrestlers that have their own YouTube channels and whatnot, there's probably more yeah. guys watching cartoons and – and playing games and stuff today than there were back then. Yeah, maybe you're right on that. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. Um, yeah, because we had no stimulation like that. It was just uh, the radio and conversation. And I remember we'd play games on the road like uh, the alphabet. You think of, uh, okay, you got to think of a wrestler's whose start, name starts with an A, and then you just work your day way down the line. That was fun trying to, you know, you get up there in the Z's, but then the zebra kid, somebody would throw out the zebra kid, but you know, stuff like that. That was always fun. And the radio though, listening to, that's why I have such a love for music. Cause we'd always be listening to rock and roll and stuff. And I think it stemmed from that, uh, being on the road so much. Well, but Smith, yeah, the Ripper though, get, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. I was just going to say, my Ripper stories, there's so many, but that's some of the tops that I can think of right now. I just, and he was such a, um, because I would do matches with him too, and he was so easy to work with. Oh my God, he was just so loose and, you know, nothing's ever going to happen bad in a match with Ripper, you know, and just methodical worker. He wasn't, you know, he didn't go off his feet a lot. He just did his his shtick and it worked for him. And of course, he was a great interview too, because he could talk, really good talker and the king of Hawaii, yeah, that's what he was. Well, speaking well, that's, of that's, being... go ahead. I, I was going to say my thoughts speak... done on that one. <laughs> speaking of the uh, <laughs> the road stories, hopefully this one. 
goes in a different direction than your last story that that Hammer was in. <laughs> the um, shower. You you yeah. had about a ten year stretch. Uh, you wrestled. Uh, you traveled a lot. You wrestled down the rest, West Coast, San Francisco, Portland. Um, yeah. In '73, you were in Eugene, Oregon. You you were running running a program against Greg Valentine. Uh, like I said, hopefully this right. story goes a little differently than the last one. But um, he, Greg Valentine's often regarded as one of the best ever, as far as you know, just being consistent and his time and his work. Um, I mean, what was it like working with him? I've heard so many different stories, and very few, if any, are issues people had working with the man. Oh, I okay. First, I'll tell you my history with Greg. We first met. I had just broken the business, nineteen seventy. I think he'd been working about six months, and I think he was had done Calgary before. Then he came down and worked for the Sheik in Detroit, and that's where we first met. And, you know, we both new guys, basically. We both looked pretty good physically because he worked out, I worked out. So they, the Sheik put us together. You know, he was healed, I was baby. So we worked. I'll bet I've worked in my career. I'll bet I worked 75 to 100 matches with him, I would say, you know, over the. But we were in Detroit together. We were in L.A. together. We were in Portland together. We were in Buffalo together. And we were working for Bruno and Pittsburgh together, so we was in five different promotions, and we all we worked every one of those promotions because it was the babyface heel thing. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed working with him. It, when we when he f- first threw us together for the Sheik, he would throw that big forearm shot as hard as he could, you know, which was a potato. But that's just how he worked. He got that from his dad. And uh, I remember one night in Eugene, actually, because we worked in Eugene a lot. He we locked up and he hit me right on the instead of locking up when your right hand comes down his right hand came right on the top of my head and I saw electricity, so I was down on my knee for real and he's giggling and I just bundled up my left hand and just hit him in the solar plexus as hard as I could mm. and he just oh my god he just was dying and he goes okay I get it I get it <laughs> that's how he was though you know he'd hit me hard I'd hit him hard that was just our matches and we had some doozies too we had some really good ones in Portland but um. I don't know. I loved working with the guy. You know, it was easy. It was just easy. He was slow, methodical. When he first, let me think. When let me think. That was Detroit. Then, when did we hook up again? I think it was Portland. And he, when he first came in there, and like the first match they had with us, he was like flying for me. You know, I was doing my drop kicks, and he was. Wait a minute. Was I a heel then? Yeah, we were both. No, he was the baby face, and I was the heel. When he came in, he was a baby face. They had him. Coming in before they taped him with Ripper, he was he would come into the ring and he'd carry a rose and he'd give it to one of the girls at ringside or something. That was his gimmick, and they were trying to make him this baby face. And, that's, and I was healing, but I would still do drop kicks on his happy ass anyway. And uh, but he was bumping all over for me, and then he he got a show in Dallas, and his dad was on it. They I think they teamed him up, and um, they called him his Johnny Valentine's younger. Uh, what they call his brother. He didn't want to be known as his son because he didn't want to age himself. But Greg told me that he was bumping like crazy for whoever the baby faces were. And his dad said, don't do that anymore. He said, don't, don't go off your feet, you know, just be a strong heel. So when he came back, that's what he was. He wasn't bumping no more. He just would take, which is good sometimes. If you can take one big, impressive bump, it's better than 10 bumps, you know? That's what, when Scott DeMore and I had the wrestling school in Windsor, that's what I would tell kids, you know, if you could throw one 
good punch, it means more than a bunch of punches or one just big kick means more than 10 kicks. You know, it does. I mean, after you throw one kick and if you're stopping a guy who's on the ground and you throw like nine more, what does that mean? That doesn't mean nothing. You know, one big impressive one, that's it. Like Harley would drop that big knee, right? Harley would come up, drop that big knee, and man, that looks like he's taking the top of your head off and he's not even touching you. It had meant so much, but am I getting off track here? Because I, I could really get off track no, on no, this. No, I just I watch guys today and they do, like I think we had this discussion, they'll do all these moves and nobody sells. They'll sell it for a second. It doesn't mean nothing. Like, like the DDT is nothing anymore. That's, you know, uh, you get carried on a stretcher finish back in the day and it doesn't mean nothing anymore. So I think that's my point is, it's a hard people love it and they they still do good business wrestling but it's just so different it's just so dramatically different than back in the day it just is it's i, I miss back in the day but i respect the heck out of these guys and girls now because they're all great athletes and they all have bodybuilding looks to them you know what i mean it's right they're great athletes but but it's so different it's, there's no there's no storyline that i see there's really no story you know i did watch a match last night chris uh What's his name? Jericho against uh, the young kid with the roller, the roller skate Darby deal. Um, yeah, that was a good match. That, I enjoyed the hell out of that match. Did you guys see that by any chance? I'm no. going yeah, somewhere I, with the story. I give I give Sting credit coming off a ladder like that at what 62. Yeah, it was that was cool. I give him credit too. I was thinking if I would have been in that spot at that age and doing that, but but the thing, the one part of the match that I really I was eyeballing is when. Um, Chris put the ladder up there in the corner, and he was, but right after he put the ladder up, I watched him. He took his left hand and pulled the tape back on his right wrist, okay? And I thought, okay, this is what's coming. The Jesus is coming, right? So then he's got the kid in the corner. The kid reverses it, and he took a really nice bump with his head. You know, he, he, he protected himself, but it really looked cool. So then I was watching, just looking now for the blade transfer, and he does the blade transfer. It's going right to his head. His hand's going up to the to the to the forehead. And all of a sudden, somebody in the booth probably went, "Camera three, hurry, camera three, because they would have showed the whole gig process, which that wouldn't have been good, I don't think. But th- that was that was cool. I was I don't know if you guys caught that last night, but that was that was kind of neat. Now I I will say I did, and that's actually a problem AEW's had. No offense to Jericho, he seems to be involved in it more often than not. But their camera work uh-huh. is too zoom in close, and it seems every yeah. week they're getting caught. Somebody's blading. You see two guys that at ringside talking to each other that are supposed to be enemies in the match, and it's oh. it, they, they they have a real bad habit of not cutting away, and it's it's not a knock on. Like I said, nothing against Jericho. He deserves all the praise he's gotten through the years, but. He's, you know, right. there's there's a lot of, you know, the, the problem they have, what, at least, what would you say, Benny, other than the hard cam, half a dozen cameras at ringside? Yeah. You know, pull some off. of these, go- you know, you, you can't pull off some of the spots you guys did 20, 30 years ago when you've got four cameras at ringside. There's no there's nowhere to hide now. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so that's happened before, like somebody's doing a juice job that the camera was catching yeah, they, them doing it, or yeah, you know they, where you'll, wow. you'll see them roll up the wrist tape. Um, yeah, yeah, they they just like I said, they just had a, a thing about a week ago, what, a week or two ago, um, 
John Moxley and the Young Bucks were in a, a blood feud, and there's yeah. there the hard camera, the two of them outside the ring talking to each other, nodding like okay, could they were they were talking about the spot because somebody was about to run out, you know, interfere in the yeah. match, and it was like come on, you know. Wow, yeah, that ain't good. Whoever is producing that backstage is not doing a good job. <laughs> that's that's one thing. Like Vince and them, I mean, you know, they always cut away on some punches, and you know what I'm talking about. They always got it together on that sort of uh, yeah, those camera angles, pretty right. much, you know. But yeah, that was kind of interesting. But yeah, that was a that was like an old time match, though, in a way. It wasn't. It was cool. The kid was selling and. You know, like in the old days, and Jericho's doing his stuck stuff, and then he took that great bump into the ladder, which was impressive. And then, like you said, Sting doing the yeah, that was cool. That was he's you know he's earning his money. He's, he's they're probably paying him a small fortune, and he says, "Screw it, I'm gonna you know give them their money's worth." So yeah. I yeah, gotta respect that, you know. And it looked like when he did the bump, he. I thought he hit his head on the table, it looked like, but I don't know. Apparently he didn't, but that's kind of what I was looking for, how he landed. And he landed on his feet pretty much, but he protected the guy. And I don't know if they were trying to break both tables. They got the one, but I don't know. But it was a cool spot. Yeah, that was cool. I give him credit. And, uh, yeah, that was cool. So let's let's go to Los Angeles, 1975. You wrestled. Yeah. I mean, a list of legends. Bob Orton Jr., Black Orton, Goliath, our buddy Jabba Rook, and Mr. Universe. Yeah, Johnny Ross. And, and I yeah. uh, also saw a, a YouTube video of you wrestling Ron Starr for the America's Championship, which was a great match. And um, I listened to a couple of Johnny Ross interviews where, you know, he came in, uh-huh. in uh, I guess, in 75, 76, as Jabba Rook was unbeatable. And he won that Olympic battle yeah. at the beginning of the year. And typically, yep. whoever won that, that battle royal was, you know, got a push for the whole year. And but even even though he won it, he was gone a couple of months later because they didn't uh, they didn't take care of him financially. Did when you were out in Los Angeles, did, did, did Mike Lavelle take care of you uh, on a, from a money perspective? Well, what, what, well, first, let me say one thing. So, like when S.D. Jones, S.D. Jones was in L.A. when I first got there, and we became really good friends. And he was getting, New York was sending him money too, though. When he was in L.A., New York was sending him, I don't know, maybe three, 400 a week, plus what he was making for LaBelle. So I, Johnny didn't say that. I mean, I would have thought he'd been compensated too, but apparently he wasn't. So, I guess, but I mean, getting, from what he, he was on, um, actually, Monty and the Pharaoh, our friends, and then uh, he was on Bradshaw and Briscoe, and I think in both cases, he said, I, I, I thought it was like 1,500 a week, because he was going to be a main eventer. Um, Back. And then it's funny that Roddy Piper was his first manager, but he said that uh, they weren't taking care of him from a, a money perspective. He went back to New York uh, within a few well, months. What, well, what I remember, when I, I went out there and I think it was March of 75, March or April, and they still had their primetime TV. It was on an NBC affiliate. We do the Christ. I could say I worked in Hollywood because we would do the TV shows in the morning on Saturday in Hollywood, right off of Hollywood Boulevard. So that was cool. And you know, would they come on at eight o'clock at night on the NBC affiliate on TV? Well, that lasted for three weeks. My first three weeks, and then lost their TV that they had had for numerous years. So. They scrambled around, and they got the Channel 34, the Lucha Libre channel, or the Hispanic channel. That's what, that's, 
we went from primetime NBC to that channel, and nobody's speaking English in it either. It's all done in, you know, uh, Spanish language. So that screwed up everything. But that, wait a minute, when did he come in? Johnny, I remember when he came in there. Yeah, he was there in 75. I remember Javaru came in in 75, right. Um, good guy, too. Johnny Rosal, good good dude, fun guy. But um, oh, yeah. That's that. what happened. I remember the first three weeks there, I was making, you know, making 400 a week probably. And then as soon as they lost TV, it just uh, it went bad. And then the booker was Louis Talay when I first came out there. As soon as they lost TV, boy, he was gone within two weeks. Then they brought in Leo Garibaldi, who worked a lot of years as the booker there. And then finally in the 80s, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, they brought in uh, Tom Renesto. He was the booker. But... um. Leo did his best to try to make things work, you know. He, I mean, they brought in Chavo finally. I had been there about four months, and Chavo came in. And Piper was in, Piper didn't come in until the Battle Royal of 76. That's where I first met him, 1976. But in 75, they brought in Chavo, and we had Raul Mata, and uh, Sal Lothario, Jose's brother. Who else? Then the, let's see, SD, myself, the Blonde, yeah, yeah, Valentine was there. I never met Ray Mendoza. Yeah, he. I never met him. Yeah, I know of him, but I never met him. What the blondes were there? Valentine Tolis was there, but he was going in and out to Texas and coming back. Reno. Ah no, Blassie wasn't there. He he was in New York then, I think. He might have been New York. And Reno too. Do you know Reno Tuafuli? He was one of the original Samoans that Shires would use. He was there. He was a big dude. So it was this, oh, Les Thornton was there. Les Thornton was there. I mean, it was a good crew of people. It was a really good crew of people. And um, I'll tell you how it went. Louis Tillet and Les Thornton had heat for some reason, right? So he put me against Les. We did three 60-minute matches. And in the last 30 seconds of the matches, he put me over Les. Now, Les was a tough son of a bitch. He was... He could go, and he was a good worker, did that solid European-type work. And uh, But Tillet just had him heat so 60 minute matches and i beat him in the last 30 seconds and he just a gentleman so just no big deal kid so um little little yeah insight on what really goes on i guess but back to the money thing yeah as soon as we lost tv went to the hispanic channel the, the payoffs uh dropped dramatically like the olympic audit the you know attendance at the olympic dropped and everywhere dropped it just wasn't getting the, you know, we lost the TV, and a lot of people didn't know they went to a different channel, but it was, like I said, it's in, since you know, Spanish anyway, so a lot of people don't know what the hell's going on, so that was bad, so the payoff sucked, and I just stayed because I liked California, and then, I'd like I said, I'd go out, I got, well, you know, in that 10-year frame, I I worked over in Hawaii for Ed Francis for about a half a year, and I went to Japan, a guy named Matty Suzuki, who was a scout for Baba and he lived. He married an Oregon girl, so he would come over and work for a while. And then he, you know, he says, "Oh, I like your work. You want to go to Baba for a month?" I said, "Of course." So I got some gigs like that out of it. So that was cool. And but just worked the coast up and down. And finally, late seventies, like I said, my wife, my marriage dissolved, and I was raising my kid alone. And I still love California, so I was really blessed that I got a decent job in the post office. I was so fortunate to get that. And then I just worked. I still was working maybe six matches a month with my job, so it was good. Then plus now I had health benefits, which I didn't have for all them years. So 
But like you said, the original question, yeah, the payoff started sucking. And I, I you say there was you threw fifteen hundred dollars. What was that? He was making that, or he was supposed to make it, or what, what I was that, that story? Was his, I, I thought that was his guarantee. I can oh, he never saw that. that. I sticks in my he, head. That, they might have said that to him, but I guarantee he never saw fifteen hundred dollars. No, I don't think he, no, maybe don't for think four weeks. That's why he left, yeah, yeah. He didn't. He didn't. Uh, there's no way. And then I remember when Roddy came in, and he came in the Battle Royal January of '76, and I was supposed to go to Calgary like the next day, and I he was he had just come from Calgary, and he was telling me, you know. Blah blah blah, how it is there and everything, and he says I think you'll do well. And uh, yeah, I, little did he know, I, little did he know, and about a month later he was managing me, and I had a hood on. So it's crazy how that all worked out. He, uh, but his, but I, I could see when they finally let him talk, I could see Jesus, this guy's different, you know, the way he talked. He just, he was comical, but he was to the point and. You know, he would say funny things like he was a big fan of the Brady Bunch, and he always, always he would always have a comment in his promos about Bobby Brady. Somehow he'd work <laughs> Bobby Brady in every promo, and it was clever. It was just really clever. Wow! And uh, but that's where he got his break. Leo Leo Garibaldi helped to pave the careers for Roddy Piper and Chavo Guerrero. He's the guy that actually helped to pave their get their careers going like it was, and they you know they used their skills and made the most of it, but. Uh, it was a good place for those guys to get their get their thing going, and they did. And I remember I got another quick Roddy story. So one of the greatest referees I ever worked with is a guy named Johnny Redshoes Dugan. He was like just a he was an old worker, and then he became a good ref. And uh, just everybody loved Dugan. So fast forward to like 1984, and the and WWF's coming in for a show, and I you know they called me to work on the show, of course, and. Uh, um, that night, Piper's opponent, who I don't remember who it was, I think it was Adrian Adonis, maybe, but that wouldn't have made sense because those both heels, right? Maybe it had to be a baby face. Maybe it was SD. No, it wouldn't have been SD either. Whoever it was, he didn't know who Duke, Johnny Dugan was. And he goes, um, the guy goes to Roddy, well, we got this old fuck ref. And he goes, stop right there. That guy's known as Mr. Dugan, and you call him Mr. Dugan, and nothing else ever again. That's the respect this guy had. Roddy loved the guy. We all loved him. He's just a cool guy. He could. We would do high spots with him. He'd have. He'd have me. He'd he'd bend down. He says, "Leapfrog me and drop kick the drop kick the guy." You know, and he'd bend down. I'd leapfrog him and drop kick the guy. That's the kind of stuff he would do. It was a great, cool guy to rough with because he was just so creative in there and just funny, funny, make funny comments during the match. You know, that's what you like. Referee that you don't notice in the ring, the fans don't notice, but he's there and he's right. keeping things going. He was good. But Roddy had nothing but respect for him, too. Yeah, that was good. Good memory of him, Mr. Dugan, yeah. <laughs> Boy, I get way, way off track, don't I, fellas? But anyway, that's <laughs> well, that's what we're shooting for, the ratings. So, <laughs> so oh, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're trying everything. <laughs> so, yeah, we've, yeah. We've definitely covered everything tonight, but we, we talked about your your – Time in the West Coast, Los Angeles, Portland. Yeah. Uh, but as we as you moved forward, nineteen you finally retired in nineteen ninety four at the age of forty six. We touched on it earlier. You were talking about watching AEW the other night. Uh, how uh-huh. has wrestling changed? I mean, nineteen ninety four is is coming up on thirty years ago. I mean, how has wrestling yeah. changed in, in the decades since you you started? 
first let me say I retired in 1994, but from that point on, I probably had another hundred matches up till I had a I had a match last year up here where I live uh, in June of last year up here. I was in a cage match with ten ten big guys, so I still did it anyway. You know, tied tied, tied nine re- knots, right? Yeah, right. Tied. I ended up getting busted open, which was cool. That was fun. That was fun. That was like. It was like surreal for me, you know. They called my name and go in the ring, and it was like surreal. It felt like I was floating. It was like 200 people there, but, you know, you're in this cage, and it was cool. That was really cool. But, yeah, how has it changed? Um, I just changed so much with, the, like I said earlier, about there's not the storylines. I mean, they, they're storylines, but it's not like watching the – Who's a good example? Let's see, Dick Murdoch versus a, a, a great babyface, and it's not, you know, Dick Murdoch taking them punches and wobbling around the ring, and then taking one big impressive bump over the top rope backwards or something. It really means something. But now, you know, you do those, you, that wouldn't get a pop. It wouldn't mean nothing. Now back then, it meant something. A big guy like that size taking a backward bump over the top, and because um, everybody does so much aerial aerial stuff now and it's just it's hard i mean but they do the new york still does good business right they still fill the seats it seems like and people i don't know i think it's more they, the people want to be part of the spectacle the pyro and all the excitements and the pretty girls you know every girl's pretty in there and i think it's probably that right and they've made these people bigger than life on tv and it's i think people just want to see them for the sake of they seen them on tv and it's I don't think it's really they're selling tickets because of the stories. I think it's just people want to go to the wrestling because it's kind of hip to do. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? I, I don't know. I, people, I kind of, people are going to see wrestling now for a whole different reason than they went in the in the 70s. It's it's like you said, now they're going to see a show. Back, you know, back in the day, they went to go see Bruno because they were scared to death that he was going to lose to whatever yeah. heel. You know, they they, they yeah. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. You believed it. That's a thing. Like down south, man, those people, they, they believed it. They, they believed that stuff. And that was great. You know, they wanted to see the, who was big down south when I was working? Uh, well, um, Jerry Lawler was starting to catch on and he was, you know, people, I don't, he was a heel though in Memphis, wasn't he? Or was he a baby face? On and I don't even remember. Yeah. Yeah, it was he went back and forth, but they wanted to see him when he was a heel. They wanted to see him get his ass kicked. And then when he did, right. of course, when he went against Andy Kaufman, well, of course they they wanted to see Andy get humiliated, which they did, and they they believed it. Then they, you know, they swear on it that this, these guys are beating the hell out of each other. But like you said, now it's just you know the the words out on pro wrestling. It's been exposed so many times, and. Um, they just want to be part of the, the spectacle, right? Like you said. Yeah, they didn't want to see Bruno lose in the garden against Blassie or whoever, Lottie Maine or somebody. Yeah, they didn't want to see that at all. It was like religion to them. Yeah, it's not. But they keep putting people in the seats, right? And they, it's just how it is. It's still out there. I get a, got to respect it, I guess, you know, regardless of the people running it. And if you don't like them, regardless, it's still... It's still out there, and people still love it, which is good. It gives people jobs and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I hope I answered that question right. I think I did in a roundabout way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, it, it's funny you talk about still being active. Benny, when we first started this show a few years ago, you were trying uh-huh. 
challenge Dominic Danucci to a match over some polenta. Maybe you and uh, you and Mickey Doyle can can go at it for some uh, <laughs> some uh, corned beef, uh, uh, corned beef and cabbage, or, or something like that. I'm, I'm very partial yeah. to uh, shepherd's pie. Maybe how about that? Uh, yeah, I like shepherd's pie. Yeah, well, they we're up here where we live. We're we live in the twilight zone, and and they got these things called pasties. Have you ever heard of pasties? They're oh yeah, like a yeah. Well, that's the big thing up here. So we could have a pasty death match or something. I don't know. There you go. But yeah, that's people's staple of food is a pasty up here. When you say pasty, you talking about the the meat pie, or are you talking about those things that women wear at the places Benny goes the to the weekend? Yeah, all my, all my yeah, friends Benny go- as well, but they're not the edible kind. Benny, Maybe they should have the edible kind. Well, the, I guess they're both edible in a way, right? Yeah, but, well, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the meat pie pasty, but yeah, but the pasties. Wait a minute. No, they're called pasties. Pasties and pasties. I think pasties are the, the gals wear them, but pasties are the thing they eat up here. It's called pasties. Yeah, it's same thing. Yeah. Same thing, yeah. Same <laughs> deal. So, so, so my... Uh, we're, we're very closely affiliated with Boogie's Wrestling Camp, I and mean, actually, I'm I'm about sixty yeah. miles away, and I actually am the commish. And uh, we, I know, lo- I know that because I was told that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. that's great. So, yeah, you know, and I, every Sunday morning, you know, Sunday from four to uh, noon to four, I, I go there and uh-huh. I watch these kids put their heart and soul into this, you know, training and everything, you know, trying to get them, trying to improve their skills. What what made you decide uh-huh. to get into training after you retired? Well, when I let's see, when I, why did I get back into wrestling after I retired? Well, we moved. We moved from the Detroit area over a custody battle. We moved and we moved up here, which is about five hours or um, five hundred and sixty miles away from Detroit, where we live. We're right in the middle of the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan. So when I was up here, when I got acclimated to my job and all that, I, you know, I got the itch again to do this. And I, um, there was a, somebody was running a show in town, an independent show. And I thought, what the hell? So I got in touch with the people and I said, I told them who I was. I says, I can get you publicity. So I went to the sports editor of the local paper here, who was a big wrestling fan. And, um, I told him about the show, but then I told him who what I had done, and he was he marked out for me, and he did a big piece in the sports section, and he took pictures, and that promoted the show, and they they put about eighteen hundred people in the high school gym that night. Yeah, that's so that's how cool. I got my. I know it was amazing, but the yeah it was it was amazing. I couldn't believe, it, but I know my publicity helped was a big. That's what got sold tickets, but um, um, what happened then? So this on that show. There was some kids from Green Bay who would, were running a show, call, uh, running a promotion called uh, I can't remember what it's called. I think they still run it, but I, you know, I made contacts with them, and one thing led to another. So I ended up going to some of their shows in Green Bay, and they made their made me their commissioner. So I was the commissioner, and then I do the odd match. But you know that that promotion. If I could just think of the name of it, I'll tell you some of the people that started there. Okay. Remember Ken Anderson, who was Mr. Yes. Anderson in oh, WWF? He, yeah. he, came from, he came from there, and a gal named Jesse Kreska, who was ODB. And then uh, Phil Brooks, who became punk, he started there. Um, Davari, Sean Davari, he, he came there, started out there. I mean, they, they put like five people there out of that promotion that, you know, made it, actually made it, and were on TV. So that was pretty cool. 
But that's how I started doing it again. And then I, then this other promotion called UPW Wrestling out of uh, Escanaba, Michigan. They were running shows, so I got involved with them, and I was their commissioner, and I did the odd wrestling show. And um, that's who I worked for last summer. They ran the show. They had rock and roll there that night. Robert and Ricky were there, and um, where I did the cage match. But that's you know, it's just so hard to, it's hard to walk away from that. You know, it's just. Did you uh, get always into training at all, Mel Mickey? Did you train anybody? Did I ever train anybody? Yes. Yeah, we had the. You mean up here or back when I was in the Detroit area? Either one. Oh, well, yeah, the Detroit area, Scott, I don't know, do you know who Scott DeMora is? He's like the president of Impact Wrestling. Yeah. Okay. Well, he was 19 years old, and he, he got in touch with me one night and goes, we got a ring over here. Would you be interested in coming over and looking at, you know, watch us work and blah, blah, blah. So I did, and they had a wrestling. I was their first champion. I became their first champion, and it was called um, uh, Border City Wrestling, which they still run shows, and it's, they tie that in with their impact, but um, that's how I started. Um, okay, then okay, then about a year into that, Scott and I, Scott approached me one night and he goes, why don't we start a wrestling school? Because people are always coming up to me, and people would come to me too and say, I want to be a wrestler. So we did. So we, we uh, his dad, um, and when, this is in Canada, Windsor, Ontario, right over the water from Detroit. He had an old building that was abandoned, so we got a ring. We had a really nice ring. I don't know how we got it. I don't remember. Set it up in this old building, and we put the word out at a couple shows, and then we had um, we had some kids who we trained, and then we got a big guy from Dearborn, Michigan come in, and it was uh, his name's Terry Guerin, and he went on to become Rhino. Yeah. And let me think. Some of the other people came out of that school. Johnny Bravo, who was managing for Scott, and he works behind the scenes now for Impact. Who else? Uh, Alex Shelley, uh, Chris Saban. Um, God, a lot of people came through our school. Eric Young. Um, Eric Young trained up in Toronto, too, I think, with Ron Hutchinson, possibly. But he did some training at our school. We had a lot of people. We had, I think, Gail Kim would come down periodically and train there. and You know, a lot of people. That school's still going strong. And Impact, or uh, Border City's got a big show July 15th. And DeMore is... Uh, He's teaming up with what uh, Pierre there, Pierre Ouellette, P- PCO, PCO against yeah. Bully, yeah, Bully Ray and uh, Steve Macklin. So he's Scott's oh, wow. making his big comeback. So that'll be good. Yeah. So yeah, we trained not just me, but we trained a lot of kids that have done well in that business. But Rhino was our first star, the first one to really make it, and and he's still he's working with Impact again. The thing about those guys that work for Impact. They have contracts that say they can work outside of Impact too, which is really cool. Oh, you yeah. know, it's how many how many promotions would do that? I don't. I don't know if he, AEW. It, would AEW allow that? I, I don't know. It depends on the but, contract. Uh, you see, um, you see some of their guys still work in the Indies. I know a couple of them have come oh. through Virginia, and then um, John uh-huh. Moxley worked a couple of the the deathmatch GCW shows while he was their champion. Huh. I guess he had like those, he probably had committed to them maybe or something like that. eh? but those kids in AEW though, they're, I know from what I've heard, they're all making a nice chunk of change, aren't they? I mean, some nice contracts or do you yes. know? Yeah. And, and unlike the, unlike the, um, 
independent contractor loophole from Vince, they're actually most of them are our fully contracted employees. Wow, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, boy, that's uh, different times. Contracts, boy, that would have been nice back in the day to have something like right. that, eh? <laughs> but, but, uh, not to be this, those those promoters were ruthless. A handful of them, like Don Owens, was a good. He was a good guy, and he actually on a good house he'd pay you fairly, which was great, you know. But like, but like you, you asked me about uh, Michael Bell and that when I first went in, and the Olympic was good. You know, they give you. I I was working with Thornton. We worked a lot, Thornton and I actually. We would make like two fifty for the Olympic on a second or third match, which hell, that's nice. You know, I'm home in a half hour, and. uh stuff like that but then like i said it took a dump and everything took a dump but yeah that's nice those aew kids get some money well i think the impact kids are making money too though because i saw scott when i was over visiting scott last week and he was just telling me he wasn't giving me figures but he said a lot of most of these kids got six-figure contracts so i mean that's pretty damn good young guy uh starting out if he's making that well, no, there's no young guys like Saban and Shelly Christ. They've been in the business probably 20 years now. Oh, yeah. Like, and yes, Rhino's yes. been in the business. Because Rhino came to our school in 93. What would that be? 93 to 03. Christ, that's years? almost yeah. 30 years, Rhino. Yeah, well, Rhino's over 50. Yeah. yeah, he's still a, he still drives the same. He's got one of those big uh, Hummers, like the biggest Hummer they make. He's had that. He always gets a Hummer. But that's him. <laughs> that fits the personality, right? perfect yeah you know rhinos he's really different he lives on a boat he's, he owns a marina he bought a marina with his money down river detroit going to ohio and he's got this big huge old wooden crisscraft type boat it's huge it's you know i been on it when he was captaining us and it's just beautiful but that's where he lives he don't have a house he's got his boat and his hummer <laughs> he's an interesting dude for sure very that's interesting funny. different yeah but yeah, that was our first big star. So yeah, you got claim to fame would be Rhino, and uh, yeah, that was it. I still wish I was down there though. I wish I missed out on so many things when I moved up here. I missed out on Scott getting involved with Impact. I know I would have had a job in there in some capacity. Absolutely would have had a job in there doing something, you know, because he took care of everybody. Some of the kids like Bravo, Johnny Bravo. I don't remember he was managing the blonde chick for a while and all that, and uh, he took care of him, and he takes care of some other kids that were from our school who work behind the scenes, and yeah, Scott, he's, you love Scott, he loves you back, boy, he'll take care of you, he's a good guy, really good guy, so, yeah, wow, I just keep, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say, your your stories, it's, it's incredible, and another show in the books and we still have so much more to talk about but as we wrap up uh i want to ask you one final thought yes sir if you could go back like let's say hypothetical time machine go back to the early 70s with knowing Uh everything you know now would would you still get into wrestling or would you do anything different well and i could apply the things i know now to them yeah use them to I would, oh, I definitely, I would do it again anyway, even regardless of all the injuries I got, and I'd still do it. But I would go back then uh, at that situation, and I would 
even before I would get in the business, I would figure out how to talk really good to get people's attentions on promos. You know, I mean, I could, I was a decent promo guy. I wasn't great or nothing, but I could talk heel or baby. But, um, I remember, okay. I don't know how much time we got left. When I was a kid watching wrestling here, Dick, the bruiser, you guys remember Dick, the bruiser. Absolutely. He was okay. He, he would do the funniest interviews, but they were, Mean, though, he would talk about, I remember he would be working at Cobo Hall against Wilbur Snyder, who was a great baby face back in the day, and he'd, he'd you know, he had that gravelly voice, and he'd go, you know, I just driving down Woodward, and I saw Snyder coming out of the burlesque show, and he was dressed up like a woman, and it's just stuff like that. I thought, damn it, that's, that's funny. That's funny stuff. But then he would have, he would be intimidating, too. That's what I would do. I would figure out a promo that would work for me either as a heel or baby. It's so much easier to do a heel interview. The baby faces, that's hard. You know, you're trying to get sympathy and be the all America guy heel, man. You can say anything, you know, you just, just about anything. And that's, that's what I would do. I would have figured out a, a good heel, uh, promo that would get me over and make some money. And probably another thing I would have done, honestly, and not BSing, I would have probably taken a shot at testosterone or something just to get bigger. I, I looked pretty good before I got in the business. I made sure I looked good, but I wasn't gassed up or nothing looking. But I, you know, I had a good body. But I would have taken a shot at testosterone and just got, you know, that better yeah. look. So I'm really because there wasn't there was guys that looked good back in 1970, but there was a lot of guys that didn't look good, you know. And if you're a heel, you don't have to look good. You don't really know. But I would have done that for my advantage. That the, the promo and the, the the little better look that I had, you know, bigger muscle. That that's what I would have done. But the promo that would have been the main thing. I would have just figured out something because when I did heal uh, promos, I would try to be funny, but then I would stop it and then get back to the point. But I always try to interject something kind of comical, like the Bruiser. That's who, who I kind of got a kick out of his promos. That's what I'd have done. Promos and a better, bigger muscle, <laughs> you know, bigger, not freaky muscle, but just a little bigger than I had. So I think that that time frame, cause they always, anytime a guy had a good body, there was a guy named Ben justice in Detroit. who was a great worker, an old timer. And he was, he worked out hard. He had a great body and he always got the push. You know, he was a local guy too. Usually a homeboy didn't get a good push in Detroit, but he, they, they, well, they, when he turned heel, he got the push. Him and Killer Brooks, they put them together. But he got a nice push, and uh, but it was he was built good. He was probably about two forty and solid. And um, I was like two ten, two oh five, two ten. Not that muscle mass, but that okay. To, to wrap it up, would have done the juice and a better promo. That's what I would have taken back to nineteen seventy. And, and so, there you got it, folks. Put put a few uh, put a few bucks from your uh, your West Coast paydays in, in that little Apple company as they were coming up, right? <laughs> oh my God! Oh, we didn't even. T- I, yeah, why didn't I touch on that matter? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, you can, you know, all I would have had to have is like, say, ten 1952 Mickey Mantle rookie cards, right? And right. they're set for life. You know. <laughs> Jesus, that's the one that kills me is the baseball cards because I had them all and it's the old story. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I see. Yeah, the baseball cards. My, baseball cards, but I think I have many how many valuable cards I had. Oh my God, I know. And my mom threw them away. You know, she didn't know. She just tossed them one 
day when I was, whatever, it is what it is. So, yeah, the baseball cards, that's the one I, every time I go into somebody's house, an old house or something, I'm always thinking, okay, I'm going to find that, I'm going to find that old pack of 1957 Topps baseball cards, never been opened or something. That's my own, and the gum still I'm sorry. Yeah, the gum, the gum sucked even then, but it, it, just, shattered, uh, it shattered upon impact in your mouth. It did, really. Remember that? It would just all break up like, uh, yeah, it was weird. It's like splintered. Yep. Anybody, the that card collected, anybody that collected cards back then has cut the inside of their cheek at least once. Yeah, you're right. And it had that smell, too, that gum smell on the cards. Oh, yeah. But, boy, that's my, that's my dream, though, to go to a yard sale and find some classic that nobody even knows about but you know yeah that does happen though that does actually you know, happen some Mickey, people do. i have to tell you my mom was an antique dealer and uh oh. she didn't drive so this is back in the the like and this is even before the uh the the car craze was you know like uh-huh. I'm talking late 70s early 80s and i would take her to like estate sales and yard sales and contents of home yeah. sales and things like that and i opened yeah. like, if, if there was a desk I always open the drawers because, like, in my mind, I was going to find like a treasure trove of baseball cards. And, and unfortunately, oh my God, but we're on we're on the same page as far as that goes. I know. I was just going to say that's amazing. We both the same plan. It's still a plan. I mean, I'm still thinking that could happen. You never know, right? You don't know. Crazy, crazy things happen in life. So, yeah, baseball cards. Huh. It's <laughs> well, so it's nice. A- Benny, you got your you got your baseball reference in. Uh, yeah, wait till the very end this time. That was good. Yeah, we waited and then we hit the home run in the ninth. There, <laughs> baseball cards, right? Last of the ninth. I, you know, it's yeah, it's funny they, um, The Yankees just had that perfect game yesterday. I thought oh, we were yeah. about to have a no hitter here too, but Benny snuck that baseball reference in right the last second. Got to do it. Two two wait outs in the ninth. And the, he got the, that hit. Somebody pitched a no hitter yesterday. Yeah, Domingo Herman for the Yankees. First no, uh, first perfect no game kidding. since 2012, I think. Uh, I think it was, wow, yeah, like perfect 20, game. 2015 or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, he says only, what, the 24th, 24th 20, yeah, perfect game? Yeah, 24 in history. That's like one of the rarest things. Wow. Hmm. That's amazing. I didn't even know that. Jeez, I, you know, I watch ESPN and, wow, that's, the that's cool. That bless the game. Is for me to have a date that works out. A date that works out? I'm saying the only thing rarer than a perfect game is for me to actually have oh. a date that, that actually works out. So have you been striking out on the dates, or what's been going on there in your life with that? like .083. I don't remember. What? Remember Hank to Gary from the Tigers? Oh, of course. One of the worst yeah, pitchers ever, his, right? His career batting average is .057 or something like that. That's my, <laughs> yeah. that's my average on going out for dates. So, so how old are you? I, I turned 68 on the same day you turned 75. No, no, uh, Dan, how, oh, wait, are, Benny, you're talking about your dates? Yes. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Six, I always, I wait, always say have like you actually, I, yeah. I, got, I got so nervous before a date, I'd throw up, you know, as opposed to my dates, who would throw up after the date. <laughs> Jesus, Christmas, I'm I thought I was talking to Dan about the dates because I know you're older like me. But I thought that was that was his date, but oh, no, um, no, I'm, I'm Dan, good. Dan's good. I'm, I'm happily married, so Dan's I'm good. good. 
Yeah. Well, Benny, what the hell? Just anxiety prior to the day or something? We're about or to what? Get, we're about to get off topic that, again. That could, that's the next episode. <laughs> yeah. We're, we, we could do uh, dates. All, all the all the jokes he's been telling these last few years, we could do a two-parter on Benny's love life. Oh, no yeah. offense, my friend. Okay. Damn. That's too bad. Well, it's all right. Jesus. But, you know, like, as the show is getting more and more famous, like the line outside my house, you know, the the, uh, the podcast rats, <laughs> it's the, getting longer and longer. The, uh, what what, what ah. would they be? I guess would they be uh, would they be cast rats? or, like pod, or yeah, pod rats? I don't know. Pod rats? Yeah, there you go. Pod rats. Yeah, pod rats. <laughs> or, yeah, pod rats. You know, I love the arena rats. I did. I always had a place in my heart for the arena rats. <laughs> Because I actually, uh, I'm not even gonna go there. I can't yeah, go there on the radio. Though, I, I think I think we've uh, yeah, you 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 reached your quota for yeah. inappropriate stories yeah, tonight. We, <laughs> yeah, the shower romantics. <laughs> so. Well, uh, Miggy, thank you so much. Uh, we always, I mean, we appreciate always appreciate your time. This has been two great conversations we've had with you definitely part three in the future but before we let you go benny uh final thought to you it's just you know i i love these stories they're endless and you know every time we have somebody on if it's you know mickey or stevie ohannon or you know we had a dominic or ivan putsky jimmy valiant any of those guys it just yeah I, I feel bad because I don't think those stories are happening anymore. You know, everybody, these, these wrestlers now, I, I, they're not making these 600 mile road trips. They're going to, you know, they're, no. they're going to the airport. Like they don't have the stories. They don't have the uh, camaraderie and the brotherhood no. that, that these guys have. And it, it's just, it's, it's part of history now. Yeah, you're right. It's different, different times. It's too bad. Yeah. I'm sure these guys got their stories, but not like you said, the 600 mile road trips where a lot of things get discussed. So it's a whole, whole different uh, deal. But yeah, guys, thanks. You know, thanks for having me again. I, like I said, that show I did, that was the funnest I ever did that first show we did together. And this is number two. This is a blast with you guys. It is. It's just fun. It's like family, you know, it's just like talking to my brothers or something. Cool. It's good stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we love I it. Like it. So, so, for, so everybody uh, out there, tell your friends, tell your friends, uh, listen in, listen in. Absolutely. And if you have a sister that's single, just let me know. <laughs> yeah, well, any chicks what? out there that <laughs> any on on that any note, pod man. rats out there? <laughs> all right. Oh no, I, I have a good job in all my teeth. So yeah, Jeez. yeah, that's. That counts for a lot well, in this world. On 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 that note, for the uh, the Irishman himself, Biggie Doe, for the Long Island Iced B, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spashano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. See you at the matches. <laughs>